If you or someone you know may be struggling with suicidal thoughts, you can call the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-TALK. Oh, you fucking want to be famous. <laughs> Guys are looking sharp. Zach Dingy, Tony Cavallari. Two Hoops, Three Legs Podcast, where we share business tips, interview experts, and travel the world. This week on Two Dudes, Three Legs. Welcome back to the Two Dudes, Three Legs Podcast with your host, Zach Dingy. Tony Capaletti. Today, we're sitting down with Kyle Ferris, who is a bilateral amputee suicide attempt survivor and now mental health advocate and public speaker so kyle has an incredible story we just got to talk a little bit uh before on camera and the stuff you're gonna hear today is absolutely incredible and just to preface it on this show we now talk a lot about what our who we talk to and who we interview who we sit down with is survivors and entrepreneurs and i think today we have the craziest survivor story you're going to hear. So let's get into it. Tony, why don't you start us off? So it's not only a survivor story, but a warrior story. My man is a warrior and a fighter. Um, I want you to begin by telling us where it all started, your, your big battle in life. I attended East Stroudsburg University in Pennsylvania. It had a Division I wrestling program, which for me, it was exactly what I wanted to do. That freshman year, I really spent all of my time uh, wrestling and, and staying focused on wrestling. The end of my freshman year of college, I had met a girl, really nice girl. Uh, we developed a relationship, and I had come to find out that she had actually lost her mother to cancer um, over the, the previous year. Her mom, I believe, had passed away over the summertime uh, when, when her and I were not talking. One of the ways that I guess she had started dealing with uh, the, the trauma of losing her mother was uh, experimenting with opiate uh, prescription pills. She had collected all of her, her mom's prescriptions that were left over from her mom's battle from cancer and brought them to college with her. Uh, probably about a month and a half into our relationship, I started experimenting with the prescription opiates with her. Um, I would say in probably a matter of eight months, my life had completely flipped upside down. Eight months, taking drugs with your girlfriend at the time. What starts to happen after those eight months? I was doing the opiates with her. I went from eligible, where I could wrestle, and I was able to be part of the starting lineup, to at the end of that sophomore year, I was now ineligible for wrestling because there were finals that I showed up late to. Uh, there was a final I didn't make it to because we had stayed up all night the night before. I was so ashamed with who I had become because going through life, you have people who are gonna tell you what to do, what not to do. The, the thinking, right? Like the, the mental gymnastics you make to try and justify Just, uh... what you're doing at that time. <laughs> like, oh, well, doctors prescribe them, it's okay. Ugh. Right. Well, a doctor doesn't prescribe it and say, hey, break it up and snort it up your nose. You know, that, that's not the directions on the bottle. Yeah, <laughs> but at not. that time, I was combination of that love and, and you know, the emotions and, and just, you know, that that's what ultimately kind of made me give in 
to trying it that first time. Yep. I would say it was probably like a withdrawal. I was starting to feel some of those effects where mentally I was still very depressed from those chemicals. Yeah. And between not sleeping and it, it all just hitting me at once, especially going through the summer, still not telling anybody I'm ineligible, Ugh. not telling anybody what's about to, you know, what I'm going to have to come to. Mm. I'm just kind of, uh, going through and, and hoping I can avoid the inevitable, oh you know? It's so you're just, literally living a lie yes. to your whole family. Yep. And on top of that, you're withdrawing from opiate addiction, which I can speak to that is awful. Yeah. The hardest part of recovering from my accident was recovering from opiate withdrawal because they were get, you know, I came out of the hospital, obviously I'm missing a leg. I'm in a lot of pain. They prescribed me the medication i start taking it a whole lot yeah. and then one day i was like all right well i gotta stop eventually and i quit cold turkey and that was the hardest two weeks of recovery yeah. because you're still in pain and now you have this whole new pain you can't sleep it off because mm -hmm. you're waking up every two minutes i'm shaking at night and it, you're hot and cold and sick and and on top of that your mental uh space is dark yeah. it's very dark so that's where you're at mm -hmm. and you're living a lie to your whole family. So tell us where that takes you. You know, things kept getting further and further off track. Uh, so now here we are, we get back up to school. I got up to school. Uh, it would have been September 1st. I got back up. I wanted to get to my apartment. And for the first, it would be like the first and the second, you know, I did a lot of fighting with her and, and stuff and, um, at the end of it, it was September 3rd, 2006. Uh, we had our final last breakup and that was it. This is, it was finally over. Um, I had a complete and utter meltdown and breakdown. I mean, now I had seen everything slip away from me, right? So I lost wrestling and like I told you before, even though, oh, I could have just, you know, went back to school, worked really hard, became an you know, became eligible again. I could have, you know, got back to wrestling in my crazed mind at the time, um, because my thoughts were so irrational. I wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't thinking about the, the proper road I should take. Right. So after our last fight, uh, I can remember going up into my apartment room you know, in, in my apartment and all I could think about is how can I stop this pain right now? You know, it was like, I didn't necessarily want to die, but I wanted to end that situation I was in. All the pain I was experiencing, all the crazy thoughts, I just wanted them to stop. I looked up at my dresser and there was a bottle of Tylenol. Um, 225 milligram pills, 200 and, it was either 200 or 225 pills total in the bottle. Um, but I cracked open the bottle, dumped in a mouthful, chomped them up, swallowed it down, dumped in another bottle, you know, mouthful, chomped them up, swallowed it down. I had a uh, Arizona big can, right? Which was what I, I helped wash, wash it down with. Um, but upon taking, upon taking that, I uh, walked out the back of my apartment down a flight of stairs um, in which case, uh, the stairs, they had four by four posts on either side, right? 
walking down, I thought it would be a really good idea at that moment. And this wasn't something I, it took me years to actually remember this, okay? Mm -hmm. But walking down those back steps, four by four post, I decided to haul off and punch it as hard as I could. And I broke my finger that night, okay? And you can actually see it. I'll be able to show you guys later, but I have this one nub that just stays down in this fixed position, right? Mm -hmm. See how I can't raise that up? Yeah. yeah. So that night, I punched it, broke it, you know, broke this in, in here. I went into the coma, right, which I'll get to in a second and explain it more, but mm -hmm. I walked down those back steps, punched a, you know, punched this post, got out to my car, and uh, I, I wanted to drive. My, my plan initially was to get onto I-80 and just start, you know, driving out like I was going to go towards uh, Penn State because there's a certain area of, of I-80 where it's just no real traffic late at night. There wouldn't have been anybody for me to veer off and hit. I mean, I was, I really tried to plan this. So out. that's what's going through your head. You're not the, regretting it right away. You're no, committed and you're done I was, with the pain. And I you just ready. want it to be over. Yep. I was so done with how, how I felt at that moment. It was like, I, I need to just end this now. And I was so scared to face everybody with now what I had, you know, what I had done, you know, like I got so deep, I dug my, my hole so deep, I didn't know how I was going to get out of it. So for me, it was just like, all right, I'm going to throw the towel in and, and, and this is it. No letter, no goodbyes. No. So what I, what had happened was I, uh, I get down, I get into my car. And I can remember I was, I was crying, but the, the moment of hope I had, and this is probably something that saved me because if I had gotten on the road and just started driving, I don't know that I would be here now. Okay. But when I got into the car, I didn't want, because I, I didn't write a letter, you know, I wasn't going to leave anything. I wanted to, I didn't want my family to think that it was because of them. So I tried to make a couple phone calls to not like, hey, you got to come and save me because it was, no, I mean, I'm an hour and a half away from you guys and I've already taken it. So there's not, it was just, let me make my peace and, and everything. And I, I tried calling. Um, I think I spoke to, to one of my brothers um, and I, I can remember my parents pleading with me to tell, tell them where I was. And I didn't do that. After I'd spoke with my parents, um, or my, I, I'm pretty sure it was my mom. I spoke to both of them, obviously, but you know, my mom was the last one I spoke to and, and she was pleading with me. Um, I, you know, I hung up the phone and I just kind of sat there as I was getting really woozy, you know, just drowsy. It could barely stay awake. My mother got in contact with, you know, my, my ex at the time and, and told her like, listen, you have to go and find Kyle. You have to get to him. Okay. Her and her girlfriend came over and they found me locked in my car. They broke my windshield, or they, they broke the car window. Yeah. They get me out of the car, called an ambulance. Um, you know, ambulance comes and everything, they're, they're waiting. Uh, while I was laying on the ground, uh, the, the girl, you know, my, my ex uh, now, she was a phys ed, you know, major, okay? So she had me laying on the ground and you're incoherent at um, this point. I'm you're... completely unconscious at this moment. Okay. Um, in a frantic state of mind, as I'm sure you guys could imagine for her now seeing this, right? She, um, you know, they had pulled me out. They had me flat on my back. 
she tried to get me to to bring up the the pills right okay? and where did she find you in the car uh i was just in my front front driver's seat okay. in my parking lot okay, yeah. yeah like i i couldn't even didn't even make it out of the the parking lot jeez because it was that how i made it down the stairs i can't remember it's that quick, it was like 15 huh? 20 minutes maybe that i was in the car before it was like my head's just dropping them out yeah um she had pulled me out of the car and while i was on my back she had tried to get me to bring up some of the you know the pills tried to get me to throw up mm -hmm. in the process of that happening i aspirated vomit in, into my lungs okay so after the ambulance takes me they get me to the hospital they try to, to pump my stomach and get whatever they could out of me at this point too much of it had already started to make its way through my system um Within 72 hours, my liver and kidneys had shut down. Um, all of my, my organs were failing, um, and I was being induced into a coma. Uh, I was put on a ventilator. Um, within a very short time, within like two weeks, I would say, if that, I had developed a pneumonia, which was from the aspirated vomit into my lungs, and then I had also developed a staph infection. So now I have all of this going on at once. I got a staph infection and pneumonia, and then my liver and kidneys that were shutting down because of the, the Tylenol. Mm -hmm. In the first few weeks, um, it would have been from, I was in uh, the, the hospital I was initially at, right next to the college, it was called Pocono Medical Center. So I was initially at Pocono Medical Center from September 3rd, until September 22nd or 23rd. And then at this point, my condition was so grave that they had to life flight me by, you know, helicopter to a larger hospital with a bigger trauma unit. Mm -hmm. When I say so grave, I was induced into a coma. Everything was failing, full multi-organ failure. Um, I was telling you guys, I went from 155 pounds, right? I wrestled 141 pounds, right? Walked, away, walked around at 155. I went from 155 and I blew up to 240 pounds because I developed what's called compartment syndrome, which is just internal swelling. It's also can be caused from internal bleeding, but I wasn't internally bleeding. I was just swelling. And so how, I swelled like a tick. That extra weight is all weight? That's all water, water weight. weight. Wow. All water 90 weight. pounds of water weight, which is... You get 70% of your body weight at the time. Yeah. I looked like I looked like a pumpkin. I mean, my head was just... It, it, it's not something you can you can really imagine. Um, Excuse me, Kyle. Can, do you mind if we back up for a sec? Yeah. You said you you blacked out the night of the accident mm -hmm. um, of your attempt, and did you go into a coma that night? No, no. Okay, I did so not. that was so. What what you told us? How much of that was from your conscious? Were you awake at all when you when the ambulance came? What was that like? That that is. So I don't really remember much besides getting into the car. Those events of how that happened was what was relayed to my, my family by, uh, by my ex, the, the cop that showed up on scene and everything. Understood, understood. Yeah, so yeah, then, that's what he said. He said he passed out in the car within, 15, what was it, 15, 20 minutes yeah, of getting yeah, in? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. then when, once you were taken to the hospital, when was the, the medical-induced coma? When was that decision made, do you know? That would have been within the first um, the first few days I was there. Like I said, my the toxicity, the the amount of Tylenol I took. Like when you do just the the mathematics of it, you're talking 
uh, what, uh, 225 times 200. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 200,000 milligrams of Tylenol. Yeah. Like it, there's, there's no reason as to how I survived that. Right. Like that amount of Tylenol should have killed me. Did you flatline within those three days? Did you, were you Not, pronounced? I don't think in the first three days, but total, and, I, and I'll go through all of them, but. And you have no memories from being taken out of the car to being induced into the coma. No. Okay. My first memory comes probably close to, um, close to the end of September. Wow. Or actually even probably a little bit after that. So, um, so you get up to 240 pounds. I was up to 240 pounds. You move out the end of September. Uh, now what happens? Are you, do you come out of the coma? So I was, um, so I was life flighted on, on the 22nd or the 23rd to Hershey medical center, right? At this point in those first few weeks at Pocono, I had flatlined. My parents had planned my funeral. Um, they actually at the high school that I went to at a Friday night football game, they actually had a moment of silence for me because it, the, the word made it back to Somerville that I was going to pass away that night. Um, they had an organ donor team on standby waiting for me. Uh, they were to the point where a hearse was en route to pick me up. Wow. Holy because it's like, he's going to be dead in an hour. Yeah. That's so you need to get this done gets. now. Yeah. And it's, they call them uh, organ, you know, donor organ harvesting teams, right? They're just waiting to take out whatever they could, you know, whatever they were going to be able to get out of me to, to help somebody else. They were, they were there. They were on standby. Not yet though. No, you're not no, ready yet. No. <laughs> so what happens after that? So once I got to, um, Hershey medical center, right? So the, I, I got to Hershey, uh, the first time I can remember regaining consciousness. Okay. It would have been, uh, like the beginning of October. I'm out of the coma, right? Um, making progress. I wasn't in as bad of shape in that initial, uh, in, in the, in the first run up, right? So the first time I was in a coma, you know, the, like the first month. I'm making some progress, right? I was traked. They had taken my tracheotomy out of me. I'm starting to eat again. Um, my liver and kidneys, which were, oh, you'll be on dialysis for the rest of your life. Well, one day, and it was, I want to say, probably like the second week in October, I was going through dialysis three days a week. I'm losing 15 pounds at a, at a shot. Mm. I say to the nurse, I'm like, hey, I, I have to go to the bathroom. And the nurse kind of chuckled and she's like, okay. And she goes out and she's talking to my family and she's like, I, I don't know how to tell him, but you know, he's, he's asking for a urinal. You know, he's, he's never going to be able to pee on his own again. So the, the nurse to humor me gave me a urinal, walked out and came back in a little while later. And I had 750 CCs in that urinal for her. So liver kidneys were never supposed to work again one day they, they started working. Like three weeks after. Yeah, like three, four weeks, I was going to the bathroom on my own. Tell us about your mind state in the hospital after this has all happened. Are you still, and are you still speaking to that girl at this point? At, at this point right now, in the, in the very beginning, no. No, I was, not, uh, I was not speaking to her. I really had no recollection of what had happened. I really couldn't understand what I had done. And the family members weren't too... You know, they, they weren't exactly divulging these, you know, these certain so you facts. You don't even to me. know why you're there. I had no real clue as to what was going on, why I was there. 
why I was in such bad shape. I mean, there's a part of me, I'm like, I'm going to wrestle again, you know. Are you asking questions? Oh, I'm trying to ask questions, but, you know. You're not getting any answers. and, and Initially, no. Is that they weren't trying to upset you crazy? Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, hold up. When you woke up from the coma, you were missing the ends of your feet? Uh, so I wasn't missing the ends anything, of anything yeah. yet. Not yet. Yeah, no, not yeah, yet. No surgery. When I, when I came out of the coma, right, so after the first month of the coma and, and being all blown up and everything, I lost circulation to my hands and feet. Uh -huh. So it was basically like I had frostbite on my hands and feet, okay? So they were just from loss of circulation. The blood's no longer flowing to it. The doctors were doing everything they could to keep the blood flowing to my major organs, mm -hmm. right? Because that's what's more important. You know, you can, you can lose a, you can lose a limb. You can't necessarily lose, you know, something more important than that. So when I came out of it and I see my feet are all big bandaged up and my, my hands in a big, you know, big bandage and sling and everything, I'm looking at dead tissue on my, my hands and feet. And I have no idea how this happened or why this happened. And it's, they're, they're just trying to give me information, but not too much yeah, information. Yeah, just enough to, to, right. to let you know your... that something's going on. Yeah. Um, all this while, too, here, here's another another layer on the cake. I was uh, I had a tracheotomy, so I couldn't talk. So there was points where I was nonverbal, where I couldn't, you know, like I'm flat, I'm, I'm trying to mouth something, you know. So I, I couldn't even really communicate when I'm first coming out of it and trying to understand what happened about the like i said about the second week in um into october second or third week now um it was october 15th or 16th okay so i've been making making progress i'm doing better and everything you know starting to eat again i'm getting ready they're they were going to transport me back from uh, Hershey Medical Center in New Jersey, or Hershey Medical Center in Pennsylvania. They wanted to get me back to New Jersey. They were trying to get me to um, a good rehab center. One opened up uh, called JFK Rehab Hospital, okay? So the day that the transport van was coming to get me, it wasn't going to be an ambulance, it was a transport van. Uh, nurse comes into my room, and my mother and my great aunt Sissy are sitting in the room and a nurse comes in and is looking over my medication chart and everything and is like, I don't, I don't know why, but there's two orders for potassium here. Okay. Well, one would think if there's two orders and you're unsure, you may just go out and, and ask the, you know, the doctor out at the desk. She didn't. She went ahead, proceeded to give me a double dose of potassium, um, one through my stomach tube and then one through my, my IV intravenous. Upon capping off my stomach tube, uh, within a matter of minutes, I started to um, throw up really, really badly, and I went into grand mal seizures from the overdose on potassium. Oh my gosh. So now, bedside, my... And at this point, just so we know what type of shape you're in, mm -hmm. you're, in the, you're still obviously in bed. You can't walk. Couldn't or... walk or anything like that. Nope. So you're immobilized. You're not speaking. Nope. And she just sends well, you... Well, I, I could speak again because I had taken the trach out, but okay. it was... You know, I was still... You're eating again yeah. at this point? Okay, and she just hits you with the double dose of potassium. Okay. Nurse, yeah. Tell us what that does. Nurse hits me with the double dose of potassium, and meanwhile, there's a transport coming to get me to take me back to New Jersey, right? The transport was late by about 20, 30 minutes to get me. They gave me this dose of potassium, or the, the double dose of potassium. I go into grand mal seizures bedside. 
they had to retrake me on the bedside. I was ended up being induced to stop the seizures because I was just having grand mal seizures that, you know, it was like four or five grand mal's that night. What exactly is a grand mal? Explain that. Grand mal seizures, basically your brain misfiring and shutting down. It's like a reset. Like think about resetting a computer. Yeah. Yeah. It's just your brain's all, wow. all going haywire. Okay. And I didn't have. From potassium. Yeah. I would never expect. Double dose on potassium. So when this happened and they, they retraked me bedside, they had, um, you know, put me back under, induced me to stop the, the seizures. I ended up being brain dead for about two and a half weeks. Oh my God. And then this was another time where, because I was quote unquote brain dead, you know, my parents are being told you should let nature take its course. Hmm. You should take him off life support. If he, if he does live, it'll be no more than a vegetable for the rest of his life. These are the kinds of things that were said to my parents, but when you're in a, in a coma, it's like, like I've said it sometimes, uh, just imagine laying with your eyes closed, just lay in a room with your eyes closed, allow everything to go on around you all day, but you just don't move. You don't interact. You don't do anything. That's what being so in a coma is like. You're hearing these conversations being talked there, about. There are absolutely times where you're conscious in the coma. That and there, there were things that I heard reason. that, God. you know, that they'll stay with me. They'll haunt me for the rest of my life, you know? And I can remember screaming, screaming, and screaming, but in your head. you're not yeah. exactly. Yeah, you're the only one that hears you. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. And and there's tons of there's tons of literature out there too now, um, for people who have actually been in comas, and it's like no, you're you're definitely able to remember things. There were things that I heard that I was relaying to my family afterwards. Later. Yeah, yeah. And that's like there's no way he could have heard that. No. No, I was listening. That is so incredible. two or three weeks, you're brain dead. Yeah. And they're telling basically your parents to pull it out. Yeah. What happens now? Because now you've already had about four miracles. Yeah. 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 So. So, so now we are, uh, we're, we're to the point where Ma Dukes is just uh, not having it. She is not listening to any doctor. Um, was just like, nope, my, my son's still there. They would see a little twitch in my eyelid or a flutter of, you know, my finger and, you know, like, no, he's still, he's still there. He's still with us. And it was my, um, not that, you know, my family wasn't, you know, wasn't fighting for me, but like my mom was the one who was just like, nope, nope, not listening. Nope, not taking him off. For whatever reason, um, brain activity started back up and they were eventually able to, to, to bring me back, to, to bring me back out of the coma. Um, one of the things I was telling you before, right? So, you know, missing the fingers on, on the right hand here. Um, I still have my fingers on my left hand. Both of my hands and feet were black, right? So my, my hands were black up to the wrists. I had lost all circulation to them. Uh, the same thing, my, my feet, they were pretty much black up to the ankles, but I regained some of the, you know, some of the, uh, circulation to them, you know, I was able to save some of it, but the reason I still have the fingers on my left hand is because my family members, when they would come in, right, I'm in the coma, my right arm, my right hand had all of my pick lines, my IVs, everything in it. My family member, my brothers especially, would come in and they would take turns just rubbing my hands for hours just to keep the blood circulating in it. And they saved your left hand. They wow. saved my left hand. If it wasn't for my, my family being there, my brothers being there, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So now at this point, 
when you wake up from your second coma, is that when they take so, your feet and your hand or no? No. So I did not actually have surgery to remove the necrotic tissue. Um, I was at JFK Rehab Center for like two months, a month maybe. Then I got moved to a lower rehab center for like a physical rehab center. When I got to that rehab center, actually, pri actually prior to that, prior to that, I had um, my my fingers done first. So the fingers were the first thing I had amputated. Mm -hmm. Took a little while, healed from that. Um, in in which case, when I had my fingers amputated, so the day I went in to have the bandages taken off, you know, my surgeon brought me in. My mom took me to that appointment. He, uh, he took off the, the bandages on my hand and I remember just sitting there sobbing, sobbing. Cause I'm looking, I'm looking at this hand, you know, I'm like, oh my God, that's, that's my hand now. You know, like my finger, they're gone. And I got over that little hump, right? That was like, gosh, it is what it is. They're gone. When I went in, uh, you know, months later, month and a half later, however long it was in between the, the, the surgery then for my feet, they amputate the front half of each foot off, um, and I had to have skin grafts to, to try and close those wounds and everything. When I eventually went in to have the bandages taken off my feet, I had no emotion about it. It was just like, oh, it was easy enough. Like, I thought, no, maybe I'll cry or something. No, no. So you had accepted it I after accepted it happened it. to the hand. You yep. knew it was coming for the feet. So, yeah. you, so you just had accepted I was it prepared. at that point. Now, at that point, you still don't know how you got into this situation. When does that information come out to you? So by the time I got back to New Jersey is when it was really like starting to be put. And all this the way is before there. amputations. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so I then, got back in, I got back in December, right? So three months. So what December, I want to know is I need to give some, I need to figure out this timeline. Three months, December, you're back in New Jersey. Then when you go back for your hand, when you get your hand amputated, it was like February, March that I was going through the amputations. So another three months for your hand and then how long till your feet? That was, um, get there December. It was like maybe a month, about a month after my hand is when I had, wow. you know, the, the surgery. So you're going six straight months yeah. of basically nonstop, Surgeries, traumatic, everything. serious, hardcore yeah. experiences. Yeah. Now, what I want to know is, do you think that not knowing how you got yourself into that situation was possibly your saving grace and how you kept your warrior spirit and fought through and made it? I would absolutely have to say so. Yeah. I think um, being told so much when I was in such a fragile state you would know, have pushed and, you over and the such edge, disbelief. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I was in complete and utter disbelief at how I got to that, you know, and to be told you did something like you had let's to talk me. about that. Your, yeah, let's like, talk about oh, you, <laughs> who told you and how that was finding out that you had actually. So it was a combination of, um, you know, my mother and father telling me like what had happened. And I remember really the reason why they started explaining more and more to me was because I was asking where my girlfriend was. There you go. I was I'm just going to say. I'm asking where she is, where right. she is. And it's like, oh, you, you, know, you guys aren't together anymore. And, you know, this, this happened, you know. 
I didn't have a cell phone. They didn't want me looking at my, you know, cell phone or trying to text or anything like yeah. that. So it was in the beginning, you know, trying to make sense of all of that. How, how uh, you know, how they were able to, to balance that, you know, not just, not just tell me like, yeah, you tried to kill yourself. You know, yeah. it was like, because they were, you know, like, it's not like my family was fully aware of everything that was going on. And it's right. not like my now girl, my now ex-girlfriend was like, oh, hey, yeah, we were doing opiates together, yeah. you know. Right. And this behavior that you're, you learned that you had taken on, mm-hmm. well, let's not call it a behavior, but, you know, what you committed to do is not you at all in any way. Your whole entire life until you begin doing opiates mm-hmm. and then withdrawing from them. Yep. So... How, you know, you're looking back at it and you're like, I assume you're thinking, how the hell did I get into that? Yeah. Because, you, you know, you've never, that wasn't you. No. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, like I said before, I mean, it, growing up, I was very, I had role models everywhere, you know, right. like I had a lot of good people around me. Um, That is always like that. That's still for me. That's the hardest part to like make sense of. Like, you know, we all make mistakes in life. We all do some dumb stuff, you know, on occasion. But to to be so adamantly against something and then so quickly, you know, engaging in it and like making, like I said, the mental gymnastics of like, well, it's it's okay. I mean, it's it's a prescription drug. You know, I mean, hey, doctors prescribe them. Well, yeah, like I said, doctors don't tell you to take them the way that you're taking them. And doctors don't tell just anybody to go and take them. You right. know? It's amazing. You know, when people usually talk about how bad opiates are, they don't really talk about how much of a mind state shift it puts you in. But like, I mean, it's clear in this story that you were a real go-getter. And then in just short, eight short months, your life changed so dramatically that you were ready to just end it. Yeah. I mean, that is a huge testament to how awful opiates are. Mm-hmm. It, that is incredible. Um, all right, well, let's talk about a little bit after, you know, you, you finish with your amputations. Actually, we only went about halfway through your amputations. Yeah, yeah. So we're at the point where your hand's been amputated. Yeah. You have half of your feet. And did you tell us that you went back to wrestling? All right, so at this point, you've now lost both the ends of your feet. You've now lost your right hand. Do they tell you going into the going or after that, you're going to be in a lot less pain. You're going to be better and your life's going to get a little bit better because now we've done things to help prevent that. Because before you answer that question, you told us those next eight, six to 10 years was essentially the most brutal and painful thing that you've done up to that point. So at that time, are you going into it thinking, okay, they've gotten rid of the ends of my feet and my hand. My life's going to get a little bit better. Um, yeah. So no, I, uh, when, when this surgery happened, uh, so the, the idea for the amputations on the feet was to save as much of what was still good as possible. Uh, the surgeon that I met, uh, that, that my mother found, uh, was specialized in reconstructive surgery. So his idea was that you're young, you're going to recover. If we cut off more 
you know, can't put it back once it's cut off, right? Mm -hmm. So his idea was to save what we could now, see how you do, see how you recover, because with the trauma my body just went through, the weight fluctuations, the being in the coma, all of the muscle atrophy that I experienced, um, you know, I, I was saying, like, I, I didn't have the, the strength to lift my head up. The first time I took a shower in the rehab center on my own, I fell out of the, the shower stool, like face planted because trying to sit and hold myself up, my core was gone. I had been cut open from sternum to, you know, to, to my pelvic bone. I had 300 staples and stitches, right? So having that, that initial surgery done, it was, I don't, I don't really know how you're gonna do, but you know, you're young, you're strong, you know, you, you've rebounded this much so far. I never anticipated how painful it was gonna be walking. It was just kind of one of those things, guys, where I looked at it and it's like, well, these are the cards you're dealt now, so this is how you have to, this is what you gotta deal with. Mm -hmm. You know, so regardless of whether or not it was gonna be really painful, um, I, I didn't have a choice, you know? I didn't think I had, it was like, all right, I don't wanna be in a wheelchair. Nothing against being in a wheelchair, because I use one now anytime I don't have my legs on, but mm -hmm. um, I personally didn't wanna be in a wheelchair because it was like, I'm, I shouldn't be in a wheelchair, you know? I mean, I, I have this mind of, of a, a 21 year old kid, you know, an athlete, like I can't picture myself in a wheelchair. Yeah. So I was willing to walk around in as, as much pain as, as I had possible. to. Yeah, yeah. And that goes on for six to eight years. Well, how long? So I walked in agonizing pain, right? From, I, I started walking probably after all the surgeries, everything finally healed and stuff. Um, I started walking around, it was probably 2008 is when I was really up and able to put weight on my feet, move, and it sucked. I mean, it was excruciating. So yeah, I, I did it. I went through life the best that I could with what I had because I didn't right. have a choice. And at that point, you don't, you don't have a job. Um, in, in the very beginning, I didn't have a job, um, you know, just trying to trying to, to piece back whatever I could in my life at that point. So um, initially, it was just years of, of recovery, you know, slow recovery. Um, in 2009, 2010, I started going back to junior college um, for a short while. But with those sorts of amputations, as you can imagine, you can run into a lot of infections and stuff. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I ended up running into infections uh, in the bone, I went through a lot of surgeries afterwards, trying to uh, just mitigate the the issues with my feet. Yeah. But those amputations, me walking, made it very hard to not have open sores, blisters. Jeez. You know, it's your feet too. So it's right. uh, it, infection right. just runs rampant. So then, tell us the next big step here. So um, I was working. I got back to my life as best I could. I had a job, I was working at a job for eight years, uh, same company, I was in a sales position. It was 2019, um, at this point, man, I, I just, the physical pain of getting around just really started wearing on me. Mm. It started affecting every aspect of my life. 
you know, being in debilitating pain, you're just a miserable person to be around. And no matter how hard you try not to, uh, not to show it, you know, you can paint on a fake face all the time, you know, you can put that fake smile on, but ultimately it's not really reflective you know, reflecting how you feel inside. Certainly been there, man. I, yeah, I can speak I to that. Yeah. When I'm in pain, yeah. it's very hard to keep a positive outlook on anything. Yeah. It's just like everything sucks yeah. when you're hurting all the People time. People don't so want to be around imagine. you. Oh yeah, there's that too. Yeah. It's like everything that could make it worse happens mm-hmm. too. It's like nobody wants to be around you. So that makes you in an even worse mood. Yep. And then it just becomes like this cycle of negativity. Yeah. So how do you break that cycle? So I... I broke it basically by, I, I'll, I'll give the credit to my wife. Um, my wife said to me after seeing me basically tap out, right, is, is basically how I'll say it. Um, she was like, Kyle, what else do you have to lose? She goes, I'm not going anywhere. She goes, your pain, you know, it's not going to get any worse. She was like, you know, if you amputate them and if you end up in a wheelchair, hey, I'm, I'm still here. I'm like, okay. I, uh, that's a good person to have in your corner. Yeah. Oh, okay, hold up. Before you get you into the story of when you lose your wife aunt, yeah. without mentioning, when did you let us know about the wife, man? <laughs> when did you meet your wife? Because you're going through this pain and struggling in life for 12 years. So, what year you meet your wife and how does that go down? So, I, I met my wife in 2012. She was a uh, she was a bartender. I uh, went out with my buddy one night and I saw this really attractive drink girl and. For whatever reason, I, you know, and I like, I walked with a cane and everything. I, you know, I didn't really think I had a shot, but I humored myself and hit on her, asked her for her number. And when people say, oh, love at first sight, guys, we met and it was honestly like, it'll sound corny, but we're just two people looking for, looking for the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, she didn't notice my cane. She didn't notice my hand the first time. That was, that, that was it. That, that was my ride or die chick right there. You know, I found a person who didn't I don't think it sounds care. corny at all. Yeah. <laughs> my girlfriend, I went on one date with her and she came back to my house that night and she hasn't left. Yeah. yeah. She, she, <laughs> Literally, she's, she's at my house right now. Yeah. She's still there. Nice. And nice. we're happy as can be. Yeah. <laughs> That's Love, what you got to have. You, you got to have a good one. <laughs> yeah. She's my ride or die for sure. So yeah. it doesn't sound corny to me. Well, good. Then, all right. That makes yeah. me feel. That makes me feel a little bit better. I'm, I'm not the only one. <laughs> so you meet an amazing woman. Uh, absolutely amazing woman. Um, and in the hold up, let you fix that. And in the midst of all that, as you're in love with this woman and going through all that, you're still going through the toughest part of your life for another six years until you decide to do the surgery. Then so, the conversation comes up. She says amputate, and you say. Let's look into it. All right. Tell us about deciding to have both of your feet cut off. Yeah. So I came to that decision, obviously a whole lot of help from uh, all the the pain and misery I was in, but um, social media, obviously the the great thing it can be, you know, or it can always be used in bad ways, but um, all of the veterans, and this is really like, this was the first thing that got me to like, just pull the trigger, pull the trigger, you know? Maybe not the best thing to say, but um, <laughs> nice. I was, you know, I, I wanted to, I, I wanted more, man. I was just so tired of being in that pain. And I would see all these different veterans on like Instagram and shit. And here they are 
amputee, you know, above knee amputee, you know, people who are missing their hip, they have all types of prosthetics and they're doing everything. And one of the ones that really like kind of like pushed me over the edge was seeing a green beret who had lost his leg. I don't know if it was above, I think it was a, a below the knee, but mm-hmm. lost it and then still went back into active duty. And I'm kind of like, all right, well, you know, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a spec op guy, but you know, I mean, sh- whatever. Well, you know, if he yeah, can, I mean, if he, if can, he can wear that, prosthetics. That's a, that's a testament to how well prosthetics work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I just, I, I was researching people amputees who you know like see what they could do you saw oscar pistorius right right i mean hey talk about pulling the trigger exactly exactly that's my halloween costume next year too just wait that's a good one force or i was uh lieutenant dan this year going oscar (laughs) Oscar pistorius next year that's a good one gotta put the blade legs to good use uh what's it called valentine's day is coming up too oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) but i uh that's when he killed his girlfriend. Yeah. Yep. That's nobody. That's nobody. <laughs> um, but all of the, ampi- you know, all the veterans, right? It was, for me, that was seeing them put it out there. I'm like, okay, get me more interested now. Like, uh, let me, like on the cusp of it. My wife, she had obviously, you know, made her point very well known to me. And it was just kind of like, all right, I, I, I can't deal with the pain anymore. I started researching doctors in my area. Um, started off with a, a, a podiatrist because I was like, all right, let me let me start here because it's going to be a process. You know, you're going to have to get uh, okay. Yeah, we recommend this, or you know, it's like I'm going to have to work my way through. Started with a podiatrist. He saw my feet. He was just like, yeah, you should uh, you should probably have those amputated. I'm like, well, that's that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. He's like, well, I'm not your guy. He was like, let me send let me let me send you to, you know. Yeah, to a foot to a foot orthotic specialist, right? I'm like, okay, I go and see this next guy, and he's like, oh, well, I wouldn't be the one to amputate. He goes, what I could do for you is, you know, foot reconstruction. We'll go in there, we'll take out all the bone spurs and this and that. And I'm like looking at him, like, why do they keep sending you to foot guys? I'm like, uh, I really just want to get in, you know, I just want below knee amputations yeah. done. He's like, well, well, you know, once we cut it, you, you can't put it back on. I'm like. I know. Yeah. yeah, I thought about that. <laughs> you know. So he was like, I'll tell you what, let me do a little homework for you. Let me talk to a guy I um, I worked with, I, I trained with. He was like, and I'll get back to you. And I'm kind of thinking like, ah, maybe I'll hear back from him. Maybe I won't. The doctor called me that night mm-hmm. and was like, listen, I have a partner. Told him all about you. He'd love to see you. So I go up. I meet this doctor, Dr. Daniel Char, a absolute, just an angel. You know, guy, I go in, I see him. Um, I walked in ahead of him. He came in behind me. He had no idea how young I was. He thought I was a 90-year-old man walking in behind me. Uh, so when I said, because of the way I walked, mm. hunched over with a cane, you know, moving at a snail's pace. Wow. Because it just hurt that much to. It's to, amazing because seeing you now, like, you know, you, you get around great. Night and day. So then you go talk to him. I talk to him. Um, we sit, we talk for about 45 minutes. He wasn't even concerned with anything. He just wanted to get to know me. After explaining everything, then he finally looks at my feet. He's just like, I'm gonna help you. He was like, let's get this done. And he asked me, he goes, so uh, I've only ever done one amputation at a time. He goes, typically, if we do have to do two amputations, he goes, we would amputate one, mm. you would heal, 
and then we'll go back and amputate the other one. He goes, but in your situation, he goes, how would you like to do it? I said, both at the, both at once. Wow. He was like, yeah, I, I guess you can't really walk on just one foot. I said, no. I was like, I, I don't want to do two surgeries. I don't want to go under yeah. anesthesia twice. Wow. I, I never said, heard of that. Doing, I want both done both at, at once. at the same time. And he was like, well, you'll be my first, but if anybody's going to be able to do it, you're going to be the guy. I was like, all right, let's do it. That's <laughs> fucking badass. That's yeah. great. And so this whole time you're thinking this is going to be your saving grace and, and you're I had I mean, faith. I guess you knew it. Yeah. I had faith. Yeah. It was Anthony or Anthony, Tony. It comes down to um, literally like when my wife said, like, how much worse can it get? Right. Now, so obviously you can only get worse, but yeah. I had, I put my faith that it was the, you know, it was the, the right, right decision. Right. Yeah. That's incredible. So you wake up after a bilateral amputation mm -hmm. all in one day. One, it's one shot. They do it. They get yep. it right the first time. Yep. No revisions. Nothing. So then you're, what do they do after the surgery? You probably go home the next day. So I, I came out of surgery um, and I had the biggest shit eating grin on my face. I was looking down at him and it was like, yes, <laughs> woo, you wow. know, because for once it was like, I didn't have, you know, as an amputee, you know, you know about like phantom pain and, oh, yeah. and real bad nerve pain. Absolutely. My feet used to hurt like all the, time. all the time, whether I was walking on them, I wasn't on them, whether shoes, it didn't matter. So right. As soon as they were gone, I mean, I was smiling when they brought me up to my room. I mean, there's pictures I have from, from being in, in surgery and I'm just sitting there like, yeah, <laughs> you know, oh, that's awesome, man. and so I went in Monday morning was my surgery and I went home Thursday. They were like, Oh, you'll be in five days. I was like, I'm gonna make it out four. <laughs> How long till you're up and walking? Shit. So I had to spend uh, six weeks was the recovery time of not putting any weight on them or anything. So six weeks to let the healing happen. You're casted up? No cast, no. Wow. No, no just, just bandages and, and stuff. So I didn't know that. I thought everyone, when they get amputated, has to get casted because I had a cast, but I guess that's probably because mine yours was, so was a little up. more, yeah. Mine was really bad. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, yours, it was broken, shattered, right? Destroyed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we had seven revision surgery, uh, six revision surgeries. You know, when it first broke, it was all the way down here. And they just kept cutting up and up and up and up to prevent, you know, infection from spreading and yeah. keep what was good and what was bad. Uh, and that took a while. I mean, I was in the hospital half a month during just surgeries. So you're, I can't believe, I didn't know they didn't cast you. And they, and it's only how long you said? Six so, weeks so without healed, putting pressure? I healed for six weeks. Um, and I, I could always pull my phone out to look at the exact date, but it was um, April when I went in, right? So I'd, I'd healed up. Mm -hmm. I go, I see my doctor and he's extremely happy with the way everything looks. We made my prosthetics appointment to go and get my shrinkers, right? To yep. not draw out the swelling. Yep. So I went, got my shrinkers, wore those for um, a couple weeks and then went back for my fitting for mm -hmm. my, my temp legs. Check sockets. Yeah. yeah. For those first ones. I think it was like four or five weeks after that, or maybe six weeks after that, I had to wait for those sockets to come in. Yeah. The day I went to get my first set of legs, right. I put them on, I squeeze, squeezed my stumps into them, right. Uh -huh. Cause there was still so much swelling. Yeah. Squeeze my legs into them, 
stood up and did two passes in the uh, the, yeah. rail, the railed walkways. Yeah. It was just. Which is, my, uh, it's like just a little walkway with two railings, so you can help yourself, yourself up if you bit. need to. Yep. yep. My, my prosthetist, I stood up before he even told me to. Like, it was just, I, dude, it was so built up in me, you yeah. know. It's like, oh, I was, you I was ready. ready. Yeah. You were waiting how many years, 12 years at that point to so, walk without I mean, pain? It would have been, two, well, that was you probably could say little... 2007 till 2020. And what's the pain like the first time? Because I remember when I first walked on my prosthesis, it was painful, but my mm -hmm. surgery was awful. What was the pain like? That first day, it was, it sucked, man. Yeah. It's, I was like, I'm not even going to lie. There was a little part of me that was like, yeah dude like really yeah i didn't i didn't realize like just how swollen i was yeah it takes and time. how much pressure it was right but i i made those two passes and it was like really painful and i was like oh man like and i and i was kind of like a little not regret but almost like yeah, is this the right thing or not right. five days go by i didn't try and walk on them for five days right and then at the end of the week, I was finally like, man, suck it up. Let's do it. I put them on, got my walker, went out and started walking my neighborhood and it hurt. But I would just think back to the pain that I felt for Original. all of those years. Right. And I was like, shit, even if this is the kind of pain I have to feel, it's less than the pain I was already in. There you go. That's less that's than the a pain positive outlook. Yeah. So your positive outlook is back in full force. Yes. Yeah. So then, you know. At that point, you've got your legs back, you know, you know, fast forward, what, a couple months and you're not in pain anymore. You're walking. Mm -hmm. You probably feel amazing. Yeah. I feel like a new person. And what's the conversation? When do you have this conversation with your wife? We made the right decision. How is that? Oh, I mean, that, that, that conversation happened like immediately after surgery when I talked to her that night. When I wasn't in pain, dude, like when I was sitting there and I didn't have those, that, that neuropathy that just... Like, it feels like your feet are on fire. Uh -huh. I mean, that's like the only way you can describe it. It's just agony. Like yeah. to I mean, wake I up and not have that. I can't that. imagine that. That pain of walking around in half foots that are getting infected. God, I wouldn't so now, anyone. Three years later, how are you feeling today? Oh, amazing, amazing. I mean, I feel I gained a piece of my myself back i gained a piece of my life my identity back you know although i'm not wrestling dude you're you're running you know like the amount of miles i ran when it came to cutting weight like i loved running i was a two-sport athlete in high school i ran cross country and i wrestled i wasn't big enough for football what are you gonna do right <laughs> so I, ch I chose the the, the better sport anyway um, Agreed. but it, to, to be able to do that especially now right i mean because just getting around, right? Like after I had had the surgery and, you know, the years I've, I've learned to just get around and walk now, it's, it's great. I mean, I have, I'm more agile than I expected. I have better balance than I expected I was going to. Um, I guess you'd say it's like, like riding a bike, right? Like when you're an athlete for so long, you know, your muscle memory, it's still there. Mm -hmm. it, it's such a great feeling. And now to have some levitate running blades yeah. and to be able to do that. And it was literally the day I got my blades. I stood up on them and ran. Yeah. I saw the video it, to it be able incredible. to do that. It was. And how did you stumble upon levitate? So I found levitate um, just by Instagram and going through 
searching ampy dude i would search like uh you know the hashtag like um you know bk life or amputee life and stuff like that mm-hmm. when you reach out to people especially in the amputee community they are extremely like everybody's very welcoming very welcoming yeah you know and friendly and offering yeah information yeah it's incredible yeah there was there was a person i met on on instagram right before my surgery when i was coming to the decision right he had he was a below knee amputee on one leg and he was a, a sims amputee on the other leg sims amputee it's like they fuse your your tibia and fibia to your ankle. It, it, it's like, it's another, it, it's another type of amputation, right? Oh, when they put your foot backwards. It, yeah. Yeah. It, oh that weird looking one. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, just so people understand what that is. There's an amputation where they'll cut you here. And I don't know what the use case is for. I don't understand why they do it, but maybe someone will know they will cut you here and they'll take, Oh no, I think they put it up here to give you a knee. So I think if you damage your knee enough or something, they'll cut your tibia and fibula, fuse them, turn your foot around, right? And then put it here as if it's your knee and they'll cut your leg here. Show a picture of it. I've seen it before. Yeah. And it's crazy. And then essentially your ankle becomes your knee and then you can put a prosthesis onto your foot and walk that way. That's wild. Yeah. But like I, what's you know, it called? A signs. It's called a signs. Yeah, I'm pretty I didn't sure. Know that was the name. Yeah, S Y M E S. That's yeah. interesting. But I, you know, I reached out to this, you know, to a guy who just had his story out there, right? And I reached out just to say, hey, like, which one do you walk better on? What's the pain like? You know, I mean, and you're asking those questions because now you're about to go through this, and I wanted to make sure I I did the proper amputation. The guy was like. Yeah, the Symes one is is cool. He was like, but I have more issues with that one. He goes, I would recommend, er, not recommend. He was like, but if I could redo it, I would just go double below knee. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. And then of course, you know, when you you start to talk to prostheticists and stuff like that, they're like, BK is the easiest one to to do prosthetics for. He was like, you know, there's so much out there. So <laughs> that's that really like, haven't lost much. It's just essentially your ankle, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm six inches below my, my knee. And you walk great. You're yeah. Walking I, fine. Yeah. Tony, Tony, can you share a little bit about why it's been, how you've realized and uh, come into this role of finding like the importance of like amputees online, sharing their stories, the community around it, what it feels like to you and what we've done because of that? Oh yeah. Uh, so obviously you know, this, your story about how you came to your reputations is, is one of our favorite stories to hear. And it's a big reason why I get online and I give people my story. Mm-hmm. Um, you Obviously, we just want to spread hope yeah. and show people that it's not that bad. No. It's really not that bad Life's at all. Life's not over. No. And, like, you can fight through it with a positive attitude. And what I like to do is give back. You know, giving back obviously helps a lot. And so, I mean, I think you've seen that we what we do is we raise money for uh newly amputee people who are having a tough time and can't really afford running blades but want to be able to run again uh we raise money for them and we purchase them yeah well for for me honestly when i saw that because that that's what drew me into you tony seeing that you guys are giving back to the amputee community you're giving people back pieces of their lives Mm. It, it like for me like that melted my heart seeing that Right. Like, and that's why I reached out to you to just share my story with. Right. Cause it is, it's until you hear 
other people's stories, right? You don't think things are possible. You don't, you may not have the strength or the courage to do something, right? Like seeing you and your story, the things you put, seeing your, you know, uh, your success with your, with your blade leg was what pushed me over, you know, the hump for me. It was just like, man, this, not only is this dude on one of these things, but he's helping give other people legs. It's like that for me, it was like, you know, shit or get off the pot, man. You know, like wow. or, order yourself some blade legs and take the next step. Wow. That's really touching to hear. It, it, that, seriously, man. That makes it all worth it, man. Yeah. It's like that. That's what we want. Yeah. That's what we want out of this. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that we had that effect on you. That's great. And now you're, you know, that's why I want to share your story too. When you, when you first reach out to me, your story was incredible. And you know, you're a real testament to a warrior because you're still fighting back every single day from, from that wild experience. Uh, and, and your story is a real testament to how awful, like I said, opiates are mm -hmm. and how, you know, even if you go all the way to your deepest death, you can always fight your way back up as long as you have a positive mindset and you look forward rather than looking back. I'd like to talk about that for a second. So what has been, you've gone through some, some serious stuff that 99.9% .9 of the human race will never see half of what you've done in your life and gone through. What has been some of your key points, takeaways, things that you've been able to do to overcome so much? Like, give me some stuff that's helped you. Yeah. Um, Biggest thing I would say, uh, especially having attempted suicide, right? At that time, you know, like I say, it, it didn't want to ask for help. I was too pride, you know, too ashamed and, and whatnot. But um, being able to ask for help, right? Being able to ask for direction when we're lost is so, so pivotal, right? Like I said, asking for help can be the easiest thing or it could also be the hardest thing to do, right? especially when we're, you know, too stubborn, too hard-headed, right? Too prideful. Yeah. Although those are good things to have, right? In my case, yes, I'm, a, I'm Irish and Italian, right? So I'm very hard-headed, very stubborn. Definitely helped me get through some things. You me too. Are freakishly you two are freakishly right? alike. <laughs> uh, he lost a parent. I lost a parent. Yeah. When did you lose your brothers? My, my mom passed away November 23rd of just this, just this year. God bless. Did you hear that? His mother passed away November 23rd. My father passed away November 23rd. That's there are, wild. There Holy are no coincidences fuck. in life. There are no coincidences. What? There's divine timing for everything. Okay. People meet for reasons at specified times for, you know. That's wild. Wow, that's incredible. I don't know what to say after that one. <laughs> Holy shit. I can tell you. I, fuck, I don't even know. That's insane. That's insane. Um, all right. So biggest thing you said was asking for help. Yes. A asking for help. Yeah. Um, although you have to be careful of the people you ask for help from, right? Mm. Like, uh, you know, life, a lot of the, a lot of the very successful wrestlers I know. Okay. And we're talking guys that are in the 1% of one percenters. Okay. They are your, your all Americans, your Olympians, you know, stuff like that, you'll, they all share a common, you know, common thing. And that's like, you know, the people you keep around you are directly going to affect where you go in life. Right. Jesus. If that doesn't so, sum up your story a little bit, yeah. it took one person, one person using yeah. drugs to come in 
and nearly wreck your world. Yeah. But like I said, though, right, it's, it was one person that I, that I did things with, although it was, even though she was, uh, you know, part of the equation, it was ultimately, it was, no, it was my recipe. It was my recipe for disaster. Right. You know? Right. Well, your ability to take accountability for your actions is, is incredible. That's one thing that we are severely missing in this world right now in this country and you know, if, if we can even just partially start to make people be accountable for themselves, their actions, you know, like I say, I look at things through a really easy lens. Is this going to benefit me or is this going to hurt me? You know, like a lot of people can't even look through that scope. Yeah. If I could grab my younger self, right, my college self, even though everybody else had told me what not to do and what to do, I would go back and reiterate those same things, right? And I would say, like, is this what you're doing right now? Is this going to make you a better wrestler? Is this going to put you in a, in a you know, better position for life? Is this going to, you know, is this going to help you in any way? Yeah, okay. If it isn't, then no, you don't need to be doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to play the game of, like, you got to live life to the fullest. Well, yes, you, you should, right? You have people who go, oh, you live life with no regrets. So you're going to go through life with no life lessons then? Because that's, that's, that's what I equate them to, right? A regret isn't a regret. It's a life lesson. Right. Right? You either learn from those mistakes or you don't. Right. So. Um, <laughs> you have a lot of good messages, um, which brings me to my favorite question of all. And I don't want to wrap it, but I do want to ask you this. At the end of the day, what is your favorite message to leave people with? Ooh, uh, honestly, my, that particular one, I, w- I will say when you're lost in life, ask for direction. Okay. Cause there's so many times where you, you're not willing to, to necessarily take the next hard step mm-hmm. and getting somebody else's perspective on it is going to help you make you'll hope to say it'll make you make the better decision but it's at least you're getting somebody else's perspective on it than than your own and try to make sure you're asking the right person yeah 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 okay i like that you got a lot of good mottos now <laughs> i wish we wrote them all down Bobby, how far gotta keep them wow Holy all shit. right so let's pick points that we want to talk more on um i feel like we so I'd say overall, your story is really about, you know, hope and being able to overcome going down to your deepest, deepest depths um, and through uh, through positivity. Um, And there's a lot of mental health influence in there. Right. So tell us about I believe you said you're working with what is it? Uh, two different mental health organizations, okay. um, all geared around suicide prevention, um, especially in youth, uh, just cause nowadays, um, you know, kids are bombarded with so much crap that we weren't, um, yeah. Social media. Yeah. Social media is <laughs> the internet. Yeah. But it, it increased human interaction by like, well, I don't know what the real figure is, but 10,000%, yeah. you know, we never used to be in touch with so many people. Mm-hmm. And it's like, when you're in touch with so many people, 
you can spread a lot of positivity, but wow, so you can much toxicity. A lot too. Of, yeah, toxic, toxicity, negativity. Yeah. It just spreads so quick. And when you're talking to young people, especially like you know, 14, 15 high school kids, mm -hmm. that negativity can get to oh, yeah. some people real bad. Yeah. Uh, but tell us about a little bit of the work you do. Yeah. So um, my college roommate had introduced me to a group that came. He's a teacher. Uh, they came and did a uh, program at his school to help teachers uh, be able to identify students that are, um, you know, experiencing trouble or, you know, having, having mental issues. And, and just talking with my buddy, you know, he was like, you know, Kyle, I, you should really get in contact with these people. Like, you know, you tell your story, you know, you're, and this is even in a conversation where I was telling him things for the first time. And he was just kind of like, you know, you really need to get in touch with this, you know, with this group. And in doing so, I became their member with lived experience. So, and I, I still look fairly young, so I can I can talk to a, to a younger crowd and and be able to relate be able to relate somewhat. You know, if you have a guy, even a you know fifty year old guy trying to talk to a bunch of high school kids, it you know may not may not work out that well. Right. Um, but yeah, just trying to raise the awareness. You know, there's there's kids younger and younger now. You have grade school kids, elementary school kids that are committing suicide hmm. how the hell that's happening how that's even possible is is beyond me you know that that's a failure on so many levels hmm. and big thing is is that people don't want to speak out if they're experiencing something you know you say like oh have you ever thought about suicide nobody's gonna you know just go up and hold their hand up and 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 put that out there because oh well then you're crazy well, no, I mean, it's natural, natural thoughts. I mean, everybody at some point in time, I'm sure you maybe thought, oh, I'd just be easier if I was dead. Well, when you move past that into thinking about it all the time, then it becomes a real issue, you know. Um, but I just am trying to put my story out there as much as possible and make sure that these kids know that ultimately, if you decide to make that decision, you're going to be ending temporary pain with a permanent solution. Mm -hmm. And that temporary pain that you may be ending, right? That will, you'll eventually get over regardless if you don't make that decision. But that temporary pain that you may end is going to transform into lifetime pain for your family and friends. Wow. Well said. There's, there's no coming back from it. Right. And those are the people, you know, you're gone. You don't have to deal with it. I have the perspective of basically having killed myself and then still being here and then having to go through and see exactly what that did to my family and my friends. And do you deal with a lot of guilt because of that or have you learned to accept it in a healthy uh, way? I'm sure. I, I will, I'll tell you this. I, so I did for a long time mm. and, and there still is that part of me that, you know, it's always going to be there, but uh, amputating my legs was definitely, that helped me let go of it like really just kind of put it to, to rest. Like, yes, I did something extremely selfish. I hurt a lot of people in the, in the progress, you know, in the process, but they all understand that I'm still here. I haven't given up and you know, I'm, I'm moving forward. Yeah. So for a lot of them, it's, they can, they can forgive, you know, we'll never forget it, but you know, my, my family and, and stuff, I mean, they, they wouldn't ask for more than where I am right now.
you know. It's amazing how you can make your family suffer through your own experience. Yeah. Like I always, with my motorcycle accident, I think my brother who was there, who was on the motorcycle behind me and watched the entire thing, had a worse experience that night than I did. Yeah. He had to watch his little brother crash a motorcycle into a wall at 50 miles an hour, fly through the air. He probably thought I was dead immediately, mm -hmm. which it's, you know, even seeing that with your own eyes, I would never wish to see that yeah. happen to one of my brothers, anyone, but to see it happen to one of my brothers, that would be horrific. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, that probably had a big impact on him. Mm -hmm. And thank God, you know, obviously I made it and he actually ended up saving my life. He had yeah. to tourniquet my leg, but yeah. that night was probably way more traumatic for him to experience than me. I mean, I was in shock, which is somehow a reliever to mm -hmm. you, obviously. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, but <laughs> he had to experience that. it and remember it and probably had nightmares and nightmares about it. But it's amazing how your own experiences affect your family so much. And you know, with suicide, it's tenfold yeah. because when you, when you take that step, you're right. Your suffering does end but the suffering's not gone, it's passed along. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And if you can tell that to people, then, you know, that's why it's a, it's a selfish decision. But if you can articulate that to them in a way that maybe it will prevent them from doing that, mm -hmm. because, you know, putting that on someone's shoulders, maybe it'll stop them yeah. and then they'll go seek help. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask is like, you know, you do a lot of work for mental health and speaking out against suicide. Now, what about drugs? Because I feel like drugs are a huge part of your story. Yeah. Well, so, um, I went through my surgeries and everything afterwards, right? So I had the bouts with opiates that led to this, right? Prior to that, they weren't there. I went through my surgeries and shit afterwards, dude. A lot of them, I can't even say a lot of, almost all of them, I would have something for pain initially when I was in the hospital, but then when I was home, I was experiencing everything. Like you say, cold Turkey. Yeah. I wasn't taking anything for pain. So, and um, is that because you knew, I, I knew what would happen if I, I went to it. And I was also just, you know, I mean, they literally drove me to wanting to kill myself, that depression that mm. they, that sets in with them. You know, I didn't want to experience that again. Of course. I did not want to even, remotely experience it again right that's wild yeah <laughs> wild Kyle you, you brought up a really interesting point earlier on in the episode you talked about you know how your life didn't necessarily point to drug addiction um, your upbringing you know and that's that's the reason why uh, I think it's important to mention that like addiction really doesn't discriminate oh you yeah know what I mean yeah. and that's why it's an epidemic so I think it's a really interesting point. It's going to be received in that way. Now, I do have one question. I think, um, you know, obviously you, you weren't using opiates through all your surgeries and your pain. So, um, so, you, so it wasn't negatively affecting your mental health after your uh, suicide attempt. But have you ever struggled with suicidal thoughts after your initial attempt in your life? Um, in, in the very beginning... Uh, when I was first home recovering, um, like out of the hospital, out of the rehab center and everything, and I'm, and I'm back home, I had some pretty dark nights at times, you know, where I wished I didn't make it through all of that because I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel, you know, 
I didn't think like, oh, this is where I'm going to be one day. All I saw at that moment was this skinny little body of a, a failed college athlete who tried to commit suicide. Like that's, that's how I viewed myself at that time, right? Because now it's, once I'm home by that time, I mean, things have been told to me. I'm now fully aware of everything that had happened. I'm fully aware of everything that I had done, mm-hmm. you know. Um, some of it were, you know, was foggy and, 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 and hazy, but for the most part, I knew exactly how I'd gotten myself into the position I was in. Mm-hmm. So those nights, those sleepless nights, especially when, you know, like you're first home from the hospital and st- you spend that much time in the hospital, you get used to somebody coming in every two hours to poke you, to prod you, to check your vitals, to do this, to that. So I hated that every time I just start to fall asleep, they'd come in and switch mm-hmm. something in my arm or, oh, and then doctors would come in at 4 a.m. and turn the lights on and be like, hey, we're here to look at you. Yeah. And I was like, great. <laughs> Couldn't let me sleep. Mm hmm. Can you turn the lights up brighter? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's hospitals are torture. Yes. Yeah. Most expensive hotels in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. All right. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to make a final point that I've gotten from, from listening to the story and talk about this is like in life, there are no redos. And so what you've proven and what you've done over the last 20 years of your life is whether it's business whether it's personal, whether it's relationship, whether it's a sport, whether it's your physical body, there is no redos. You can only look at what is on the chessboard and then make a move from that. Okay, this is the situation I've been dealt. What is the next best thing I can do to improve my situation? And like, you have been such a good example of that because every time something happens, You've been able to make it to the next step, to the next step, to the next step. And now, 16 years after, 17 years after almost killing yourself, you're in a stage where, like, you went through basically almost killing yourself, then going through complete misery to now being the happiest you've probably ever been in your life and being the strongest mentally you've probably ever been in your life, you know? So the testament and and the point I want to make is just, like, whatever it is, you have to be able to, to now what you've been able to do is like pull back and say, okay, this is the shit that's happened. This is what I'm going to do next. And this is how I've overcome it. And you said to me before off camera, you were talking about now you work at a funeral home and you were like, it doesn't matter the money I make. It doesn't matter what I would do. I would not give up this job because what I do now, it, I can relate to these people in a way that they've never been able to, to talk to someone at a funeral home because you've dealt with all that. So all of the stuff you've done up to this point has been amazing and i would want to make that final point just because for me this whole time listening to you guys it, that's that's what stuck out to me and that's what i wanted to share so and it's not over you just started running again exactly well, how long ago two weeks ago i got my i got my blade uh, legs january 9th yeah this guy's good with dates yeah you're really <laughs> good at dates <laughs> extremely just specific the, just the other day it was uh two day, yeah two days ago that new the new video i posted there's at 245. A, yeah, yeah. There's there's a hit there's a hill in my hometown that I used to run up all the time. It's called Cliff Street. And it's just a, you know, like an inclined hill. Used to sprint up and down this thing with ten layers on to lose weight in high school. Cutting weight. Never torture. Yeah, never ever thought in a million years I'd be able to to run up that hill. And the other day, my wife and I was like, I'm just I'm going to do it. 
And, I, and all I'm thinking is like, all right, am I going to fall forward trying to go up this thing? And it's like, <laughs> well, sometimes you got to run before we walk. That's right. And that's, right. And that's you know. Sometimes. So. That's awesome. I just have, uh, and I want to just throw this out there too. Um, I just spent a weekend in a house with extremely influential people, right? Everyone from the Levitate crew and a bunch of other amputees. And while I was there, one of the days I had this thought, you know, we were all there because one thing happened to us. And for most of us, it was an accident, but we're all there. And I'm with pretty influential people, you know, Footless Joe, I'm sure you may have heard mm -hmm. of her. Um, Alyssa, the amputee, huge following. Um, we had uh, Lasse Mads yeah. in there. Uh, all of, you know, all of us were there because of an accident that had happened in our life. And through that accident and what we had to overcome, we all found a greater purpose. And obviously it sounds like your story is going to be that same exact story. And, you know, our purpose has now become to spread positivity in the amputee community, which you're going to do as well, but not just the amputees. You can actually share it with anyone who's suffering from mental health issues. And so with that all being said, it, you know, would you have take anything back or would you take this path again? I have had that conversation many times before. And every time I come to the same exact conclusion, um, if I changed anything about that night, I would not be the person I am now. I'm a better person than I was then. The way I like to, to sometimes look at it is all the shitty qualities that I had at the time died with that person that day. Mm -hmm. And I had the long journey to become the newer, better person I am now. So, and I sure as shit never would have met my wife, you know? And that's like, honestly, that that's probably the biggest thing for me is like, all right, if I change that, I don't go through that. What says I would have ever what met my soulmate? It's funny yeah. you say yeah. that because I, I said the same thing to my girlfriend and then... She's like, we probably wouldn't have met. And I was like, we absolutely would not have met yeah. if I didn't get into my accident either. Mm -hmm. It's wild. We're all on a crazy ride, man. You know? It's wild where we find our purpose. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it there. That was incredible. Thank you for coming and sharing your story. Um, is, there, is there a spot where people can go and check you out and listen to you? And do you have a message to people who need help with mental health? Um, so about the only social media I'm on currently is Instagram. Uh, my name's Kyle Ferris, 1985 at Instagram. That, yeah. That's my, you know, my little handle. Um, really, once again, when it comes to uh, anything mental health related, right? Speak to somebody. Easiest thing for younger people, speak to somebody who's older than you. Because chances are, as they've gone through something in their life and they've dealt with it, similar to what you're going through. You know, you pass people every day. We're all going through our own battles. We're all fighting our own demons. Um, and reaching out to people is, like I said, it's it's easy, but it it's hard. But I love when people reach out to me. Yeah, yeah. Just like you did. Yeah. You reached out to me. A lot of people reach out to me on Instagram now. Uh, because of what we're doing and I'm sure you're open to people reaching out to you especially Absolutely. if they need help and yeah. just to talk to someone yeah. when you're fortunate enough for a second chance at life you gotta you gotta do everything you can with it so yeah 